This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Missing is produced by What's the Story Sounds. They also make lots of other great content, which I think you might like. Why not sign up for What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll find series including The Missing completely ad-free, as well as bonus content and even entire series you can't hear elsewhere. Signing up is super easy. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Children in the UK's care system are 20 times more likely to go missing than children who live with family. Children in care are also far likelier to be reported missing more than once. While the disappearance of 18-year-old Louise Toome occurred just after she'd left the care system, it would be foolish to separate her disappearance from a childhood of trauma and an adolescence shaped by a series of ill-fitting foster families. Louise had become a perpetual runaway, constantly leaving for days and weeks before she was brought back by social services, a pattern which foreshadowed her eventual disappearance in June 2005 and led to people not taking her disappearance seriously at first. Louise's story is not as rare as it should be. Her sister Rebecca had a largely positive time in the care system and it's the gap between their experiences that dictates the story you're about to hear. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds, and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Louise Toome. Louise was born in Leeds in 1987 to parents Donald and Catherine, the middle child of three. Barry, the eldest, was born with Angleman syndrome, a genetic disorder which causes delayed development, problems with speech and balance, intellectual disability and sometimes seizures. 
he's in the care home. I'm his representative. I'm his advocate, so I go and see him regularly. He's happy. That's Rebecca, Louise's younger sister. He's really happy. He's not able to talk, like, but he's a happy chappy. Due to Barry's condition, life was often tricky, and the family moved around frequently during those early years, eventually settling down in Edge Hill, a housing estate in Scarborough, North Yorkshire, when Louise was nine and Rebecca was seven. It's all been knocked down now, half the houses. It was a bit of a rough, rough end back in the 1990s. The two sisters spent nearly every waking moment together. We were really close. We used to follow her around everywhere and go down to the beach with her. Louise was a little bit more wild than the most kids, though. She was a bit of a bad influence as well. Louise had a penchant for dreaming up activities that were a little outside of the ordinary and certainly more dangerous than hopscotch or hide-and-seek. She once made me stand on a, on a railway track with like stones in my hand and wait there until the near behind B&Q used to be able to get onto a railway track. And I stood on there and, and she wanted me to wait until a train came. <laughs> and luckily a train never came and got bored of the game. On another occasion, Louise set fire to the moors, causing a blaze that had to be put out by the local fire brigade. She was a bit of a wild card, but she was still, still like my loving sister. But I did look up to her. We were together all the time and we looked like each other and all people used to say we looked like twins when we were younger. But whilst the sisters found happiness in each other's company, their childhood was far from idyllic. One figure in particular loomed large over their lives, a source of trauma that would cast a long shadow. Their father, Donald Ford. Donald worked as a chef for a time, and the nomadic nature of that line of work was one of the reasons behind the family's frequent changes of address. And when work was less than consistent... Donald started to rely on other, less legitimate ways of generating income. So he was in and out of prison and he, we moved towns a lot. And apparently it was because he, he was wanted by men and stuff. People uh, weren't, you know, weren't happy with him. He was in, into guns and drugs. Donald was a dealer and one who didn't care to keep his professional and personal life separate. There was plenty of crossover between his drinking buddies and his customers and the family home was his preferred place to do business. For his young children, this meant a lot of exposure to addicts and criminals in a house where drugs and even guns were often on show. He did have guns. He had classical guns. He had his pistol. He had, he had guns. And I used to play with him. I know, it's mental, isn't it? Donald also had violent tendencies, which were regularly aimed at his wife Catherine, as well as the children. She was scared of my dad. And my dad used to beat her. That's how she got a miscarriage. That's how we lost our baby sister, Lisa. Lisa Ford, she was going to be called. Yeah, I remember seeing him beat my mum and her falling down these steps that were concrete steps all the way down. It's a fair few steps, like. On one occasion, an argument escalated between Catherine and Donald to the point that he drew a gun and pointed it at her head. Catherine eventually left her husband, but the toll her marriage had taken on her mental health 
meant that she wasn't capable of keeping the children in her care. They stayed with their father. She wasn't far away, but whenever she came to the house, she just got beat up every time uh, when she was wanting to see us. And she'd always be drunk as well. Cause she, uh, she, was, she was an alcoholic, bless her soul, but she had a heart of gold. The situation at home deteriorated further in Catherine's absence. According to Rebecca, the children were regularly subjected to violent physical abuse. Catherine did attempt to intervene on occasion. There was a time she uh, she took us, and I don't know whether you could call it kidnap or what, she took us all from my dad without not knowing, and it was before Christmas, and she took us on the train, and she took us to Manchester to my uncle's. We spent Christmas with them and their family, but there was some point where we came back. We came back, and that's all I remember. I can't remember much, and then I'm back with my dad again. I blocked a lot of it out of when I was younger. As the mistreatment from Donald intensified over the years, one of Louise's coping methods was to run away from the family home frequently. I know Louise was running away from home, from my dad's, but she'd always run away to my mum to see my mum. She absolutely adored my mum. She was eventually placed into care, after her father argued he was no longer able to handle her behaviour. Rebecca and her brother were largely kept in the dark about her situation. As far as they knew, one day Louise was there, and the next, she wasn't. She was just gone. (laughs) She was just gone. (laughs) Nobody spoke to us. I was so young, I was so confused at what was going on, that it was really confusing. Everything that was going on in my life was confusing. Nothing got explained to us as kids, you know, as I didn't know anything really. Rebecca and Barry were left at home with Donald, who at this point had dropped all pretense of providing a nurturing environment for his children. When he did remember to feed them, it was barely enough, and Rebecca, by necessity, became her disabled brother's primary caregiver. I was looking after him. When we got food, I used to give him my food. Their father would regularly leave them at home with strangers and went as far as boarding up the windows to deter the children from following in Louise's footsteps and escaping. It's hard to imagine how no one stepped in to help them, how such horrific treatment could go unnoticed. As Rebecca tells it, it came down to a combination of her mother's fear of her ex-husband and what he'd do if she moved against him, as well as a series of institutional failings. Social services throughout our life knew stuff was going on, so knew there was drugs getting involved, knew that we weren't getting fed, or knew we weren't getting looked after properly. They knew all sorts. Um, (laughs) It's in the 1990s, isn't it? So I was going, I went to school with a black eye once. So they knew, they knew all sorts and there was reports put in place, but nothing was getting done like. Rebecca and Barry continued to live with their father for over a year after Louise was placed into care, until one night when everything changed. How we all got put in care was somebody on a payphone rang the police and said, uh, this man's got guns, and the police raided my house. It was late at night, no, I was downstairs, 
and uh, I had been playing with this wild kitten, this kitten that we had, and my dad was on couch. He was probably just drinking whiskey, watching TV, and uh, there was this big slam at the door, and then again and again they broke the door down, and they all came in. I hid inside the wardrobe, and the, it wasn't just the police that were there in a police van and all that. It was also social services, a social worker for me, a social worker for my brother, two separate vehicles. It later emerged that the police had received an anonymous tip-off about Donald's drug and weapons dealing. She can't be sure, but Rebecca is fairly confident she knows the caller's identity. A very close person to me um, believed that it's uh, that it was my mum that had phoned up, phoned up off that payphone and caused us to be put in care, which was the best thing she could have ever done. Rebecca and Barry were placed into care and ended up living with separate foster families. Court proceedings were initiated to prevent Donald from having access to the children. Through their family support workers, they were finally reunited for a visit with Louise, who at this point had been in the care system for almost two years. We were really, really excited to see each other because we were close. Like I remember this time, one foster placement <laughs> uh, that, that she was at, we were in a field and there were loads of bunny rabbits and we were just trying to chase all bunny rabbits all coming out of the holes. It was springtime or something. The siblings traded stories of their respective foster family experiences. Barry required specialised care. He was quite vocal and quite aggressive, but that's due to the abuse that he received. And he had that all on top of his disability. Rebecca had a rocky start with her first placement, an older, devout Christian couple based in Hunmanby that she never saw eye to eye with. There was one particularly troubling incident from this time, when after spotting her picture in a local paper, Donald managed to track his daughter down. I was at Hunmanby School and then I was at this playgroup and they'd taken a picture of me and put me in newspaper and he'd cut it out and he'd, he went and drove to her address. Goodness knows how he knew her address. And uh, he came looking for me, and I was at school at the time. And he had a bike, and he dropped a watch off for me. I think it was quite a big deal, because he wasn't allowed to see us, so I shouldn't have ever have been in newspaper. Donald's response to social services' subsequent visit to his home was to throw a brick at them from the window. Unsurprisingly, now that her father knew where she lived, Rebecca needed to be rehomed. At the age of 10, she was placed with a couple named Sonia and Richard from Setrington, North Yorkshire, who she gelled with almost immediately. I was really lucky. They treated me really well, brought me up well. Yeah, I'm still in touch with them today. They're the class as my family now. But Louise didn't have quite the same experience. She was in care home after care home. She was less less lucky and she kept running away. And the thing is, is she was running away and whenever she ran away, she had a purpose. And she'd always run away to go to meet, see her mum. So she'd end up running, ending up in Scar and trying to find her mum. On one occasion, Louise left her foster family to go and confront her father about how he treated her and her siblings. 
she found my dad in Scarborough and she'd asked him why he'd done the things he'd done to her and why she received the abuse. To the best of Rebecca's knowledge, Louise didn't receive a satisfactory answer. At this point in time, the sisters would only see each other every couple of months when social services made the relevant arrangements. Catherine would often join them for these reunions too. My mum would get picked up first, then I'd get picked up, and my sister, and then we'd all go to Barry's, or we'd sometimes go to McDonald's or something. And we used to write letters to each other as well. That was our kind of contact of writing letters to each other, and it would be just about how you are and how you're doing at school. Louise had always had a vivid imagination, Rebecca says, and she believed that her sister often retreated into a fantasy world of her own design to cope with the one she was living in. She was obsessed with Disney, and she was just kind of younger in herself, if that makes sense. Had her inner child. I don't know what she wanted to do when she grew up. She was a big dreamer. And she did, she definitely lived in fantasy land. I think it was her way of coping with everything that had gone on and happened to us. One year at Christmas, Louise got permission to visit Rebecca in Setrington. She came to my foster parents' house and stayed as well, stayed over, and that was special. The three siblings would always look forward to their reunions. So when they occasionally fell through at the last minute, they'd be bitterly disappointed. So you're due to see them and you get all excited. And this happens to loads of foster kids, it's ridiculous. You get all excited and then social worker cancels on you and you, you won't get to see your family. And then the foster carer, bless them, would get nothing but grief off the foster child because the foster child's that upset that they aren't going to see the family. They end up playing up on that. So that kept happening a lot where it kept getting cancelled. It had happened a few times, say three in a row. <laughs> Every now and then it was happening. The next few years passed by largely without incident for Rebecca. She settled into a new routine with her new family. And as she neared the age of 16, she made plans to join the army. Then, one day, while she was at home with her foster mother, Sonia, the phone rang. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I received a phone call in 2006, and it was off her, and it was off a payphone, and she's just said... Becky, it's me, I'm okay. And then that was it. The phone went dead. And that was the last time I ever heard from her. Louise was 18, nearing 19. She had been out of the care system for almost a year. And social services had set her up in a flat in the market town of Darlington, County Durham. 
The phone call was the first time Rebecca had heard from Louise in almost a year, which wasn't unusual. They had gone for similarly lengthy periods without speaking before. But Rebecca knew something was wrong and she wanted answers. I was really confused and Sonia sat me down and said, look, she's missing. And the social services then had a word with me and told me she was missing and that they didn't want to tell me. She'd gone missing in 2005, but they didn't tell me for up to a year. And then social services sat me down and said, look, we didn't tell you because you were doing your GCSEs. As it turned out, Louise had been seen in Darlington, the location of her flat, on June the 10th, 2005, with the last reported sighting of her in Islington, North London, the following week. The police released a physical description of Louise, who was five foot six, of slim build with a pale complexion, brown eyes and reddish-brown shoulder-length hair worn in a bob. You can see the photo on our website, www.themissingpodcast.org. She was also wearing blue embroidered jeans, a blue denim jacket and high-heeled pink sandals, and she was carrying a denim bag. That phone call, almost a year later, was the first Rebecca had heard of any concerns about her sister's welfare. Afterwards, Rebecca spoke to the police, who informed her that at the time of Louise's disappearance, they had focused their inquiries in London, where Louise had last been seen. The police tell me very little. They just tell me that there's no trace of her. There's no police records, no hospital records. They've interviewed a number of people, but they don't tell me who the people are. They just say they've interviewed a number of people from London and they're high-risk people that I've known for her to be amongst. After speaking to the authorities, Rebecca was given a suitcase recovered from Louise's flat. The luggage contained a number of items which helped Rebecca to paint a picture of her sister's life at that time. Printed slips where she she's just tried to sign on onto job seekers and she'd been looking for a job. Amongst the items was a letter addressed to Louise from a man named Lee James and sent from HM Prison, Wormwood Scrubs in West London. I hope you are doing well and that you are staying away from London. I do not want you having anything to do with your old ways of life, but that is for you to decide. I hope your interview went well. Have you settled into your new house properly yet? Don't feel too lonely there. The letter seems to paint a picture of a hedonistic scene in London that soured. It tells me that, obviously, there was something going on. In London, there were high-risk people that she shouldn't have been around. So there's obviously stuff there that's concerning. Rebecca wondered whether Louise's Darlington-based flat was perhaps a deliberate attempt to distance herself from her life in the city. Lee said he was due to be let out in early 2006, sooner if he managed to stay out of trouble. Had he and Louise potentially reunited at some point? Might he have information about her whereabouts? Rebecca dug deeper into the rest of her sister's belongings to find out more. There was an address book in there with contact numbers on, which I don't know where it is now because I've taken that out of there and I've tried contacting all these numbers. And then it had this restaurant on there. Years ago, when she was living at this flat, her family support worker had come out to see her and she'd taken her to this restaurant. And these guys weren't particularly very good men, apparently. 
social services had told me this, these men that she'd been hanging about with at a restaurant within Darlington, and they weren't particularly nice men. My family support worker thinks that they were trafficking young girls. Could Louise have fallen victim to traffickers? A woman with no concrete ties and a seemingly transient lifestyle might make her more vulnerable to this type of predator. It's a theory Rebecca considered. I either think she's being held against her will or she's somebody's killed her because she was so good at running away as well and she'd always run back to her family. Given his violent history and the attempt he made to reconnect with Rebecca, it would be fair to wonder at this point if Donald might have had anything to do with Louise's disappearance. But he had died three years earlier in 2003. When he passed away, I was really, really upset because I just lost my dad. But as I got older, I realised a lot of the stuff and a lot of the abuse was abuse and I didn't understand it at that age. I shut it all away. As I matured and got to 16, I realised how evil he was and I'm basically, I don't visit his grave. In the absence of any further information, Rebecca did what she could to push the investigation forward. I've made a missing group for her on Facebook and I've tried to get the word out that way. In the meantime, she joined the army, initially as a chef in the Royal Logistics Corps, before eventually becoming a dog handler in the Royal Veterinary Corps. I did my service for two and a half years and uh, had to be uh, no longer suitable for the army because I've got Raynaud's disease, which is a... uh, a blood condition where your blood doesn't circulate properly. So I had to leave in 2018. And then I moved to Bracknell, which was down south. After leaving the army, Rebecca dabbled in care work and spent time as a security guard. All the while, the unanswered question that was her sister's whereabouts hung over her head. Desperate for answers, she turned her attention back to the suitcase. There was her number, her phone number in a book and I rang it and it just went beep, beep, beep when every time I rang it and it wouldn't work. Well, years later down the line, I took the suitcase back out from under my bed and I was rooting through it again, trying to get information. And then I found her phone number and I rang it and um, somebody answered. I freaked out and they put the phone down on me. I, I had it in my head that... This was her, her number and it was still working. And I reported it to the police. They came up north and interviewed me. I just did a statement on about this phone call that I'd made because I was concerned that obviously it was her phone, linked to her phone still. So I thought it was her, but the phone number had been re-registered to a new number. That false lead, coupled with the death of her mother later on the same year, marked the start of a very difficult period for Rebecca. It broke me mentally. It sent me on a a really bad path of bad mental health and I wasn't looking after myself very well. Then, a few years ago, there was an unexpected development. My family support worker told me that the social worker had gone out and met Louise. She'd gone out her way and met her in London. 
the alleged meeting had happened in 2006, over a year after Louise had disappeared. So even though Louise was missing, apparently there had been some contact from the social services. For Rebecca, it was a baffling turn and one she couldn't make sense of. How could her sister have been missing in 2006 if she was still receiving visits from social workers a year after the fact? And why hadn't anyone told her about this meeting? She brought the tip to the authorities, but they found no evidence to support the claim. They've got no leads. They've, they do none of them know any can give any information on where she is or what she's doing. And that's basically all they've told me. Rebecca and Louise were both very creative children, keen writers who loved to tell stories. Louise continued to write into adulthood, and Rebecca found dozens of her poems in the suitcase recovered from her flat. Louise wrote about everything, her past, her father, her hopes for the future. Reading them offered Rebecca a glimpse into her sister's state of mind in the years leading up to her disappearance. The one you're about to hear is called Why, Why, Why? Why am I vulnerable? Why am I different? Why can't I make a friend? Why am I selfish? Why can't I go to normal school? Why can't I mix in? Why can't I make friends my own age? Why do I look younger than my age? Why am I a danger to others? Why can't I put things right? Why aren't I like other teenagers? Why can't I feel the love and affection I need? Why do I keep doing things wrong? Why do my placements break down? Why do I have learning difficulties? Why do I feel I want to die? Why do I feel I'm the only one? Why am I the only one with problems? Why can't I get rid of my problems? Why did my dad have to die? Why do I wish to be with him? Why was time stolen from us? Why do I have to think on to my father? Why am I so lucky anyway? Much like her sister, what Rebecca wants are answers. Why did Louise vanish? Did someone harm her? Would anyone ever be held accountable for her disappearance? Rebecca wants to draw attention again to the disproportionate number of children and young adults who go missing from care or in the aftermath of the care system, with less people, in fact, sometimes none at all, invested in their safety and well-being, their cases need even more empathy and attention. With that in mind, Rebecca believes there's someone, perhaps listening right now, who can shed light on her sister's case, and she's appealing for your help. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. Did you see Louise or a woman matching her description at any point in 2006, most likely in Durham or Islington. Do you know Lee James or any of Louise's acquaintances from that time in her life who might be able to provide some information about her whereabouts? If so, please get in touch. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured in the series. There's also links where you can share vital information on these cases with the experts at Locate International. They've set up a team to investigate these cases 
and explore any information that comes in. The series is also made with the help of missing people, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. You can reach them by calling or texting 116-000 or by emailing them at 116-000 at missingpeople.org.uk. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. Rebecca hopes that the information will soon arrive to help solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.